Welcome to the Oh For Food's Sake podcast, where we unwrap the struggles of working in the food industry so that you can thrive in what you do best while sustaining a rewarding and fulfilling career or business. We are your hosts, Lucy Wager, food industry consultant, and Amy Wilkinson, coach and facilitator, bringing you our expertise of starting a food brand and working in the food industry for the last 20 years. Our podcast is for you to find new ways to cope with the daily struggles, but mostly to inspire you to work on what's not working to ultimately improve your career or business long term. So hi, everyone. Um, Welcome to this week's episode of Oat for Food's Sake. And today we have Gail Francis with us. Hi, Gail. Good morning, both. Hi, Gail. Good morning. And um, for once, I am intru- I introduced Lucy to somebody. So every time we have a guest, Gail, it's like Lucy's introduced me to this person. And um, we met, didn't we, Gail, kind of via LinkedIn a, a few months ago. So yeah, I was I was really impressed with a lot of your LinkedIn posts about you know people development and helping coach women in industry and we both had a similar background I think in our careers and you know we both had crashes at some point so I felt very confident in talking to you about that so that's how I got introduced to you. Yeah we had a virtual cuppa didn't we and then I had a few chats about what you what you do and I was like you really need to talk to my friend Lucy um so you've had a chat you then had a chat as well didn't you? We did yeah 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 Amy said to me you've just got to speak to this lady Lucy she's just she's just like us she's just full of ideas she's got loads of experience and she's got an MPD background you've just got to speak to her we're all, we're all creatives that's it isn't it we're yeah. all passionate yeah. creatives and that was our link I think yeah so we, we definitely all hit it off and that has led to something which is a bit of a collaboration that mm. we are doing so we'll talk about that it's a little bit exciting. later on yes um but if you're happy to go we'll just start by giving us a bit of a kind of an overview of your career in food not a CV from birth or anything but you know <laughs> no not from birth I think um I didn't follow the traditional route of doing food science or food you know to find science and technology degree I knew I loved food from an early age so kind of you know I was early chefing at like 14 in a local local pub you know okay. went to do the washing up and ended up cooking roast dinners on a Sunday and realized I love food yeah And luckily, you know, I didn't really know a route into the food industry, but I lived in Gloucestershire and Cheltenham College of Art and Technology had just launched a new training course, which is a three-year food diploma. So it covered both the soft skills like the chefing. So I qualified as a chef and a baker and a patissier, but it also covered microbiology, chemistry, culinary French, you know, the whole bit. So it gave me this really wide view of the food industry. And I knew that I wanted to go into food manufacturing after that because chefing just looked too hard. (laughs) <laughs> that sounds familiar it's a little bit, my story's a little bit like that like you get all that breath and you're like mm, I don't really want to work all those hours no I did some shouting it's just unsociable hours and you know not great pay so I trying to find a route into the industry and just by pure luck my microbiology lecturer at the time recommended me for a role at Camden Camden Research at the time mm-hmm. which is now Camden BRI mm-hmm. um, and I, I joined them as a very junior um, technician on working on products and packaging technology and processing so it was the best apprenticeship I could ever have asked for and it got mm. me linked to lots of people in the industry and lots of processes and technology and it was just perfect I absolutely loved it and you know I really cut my teeth in the food industry in that that job really at the beginning 
brilliant experience. So yeah, that must have given you a real breadth of understanding of the industry as well. It did. And I, I didn't understand. You, when you come from a chefing side of it, you don't understand that route to the food industry, food manufacturing, because when I was at school, it was home economics. There was mm-hmm. no food. There was no, no food science A-level that you can do now mm-hmm. or food technology A-level. So, yeah, it gave me a really wide view of what was potentially out there to pursue my career further in the industry. So, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And Camden's such a lovely place to work. Mm. And you're great people. I absolutely loved it. Mm. so how long did you spend at Camden so I was I was at Camden eight years um five of that was in product process technology and then I don't know if you remember Chorleywood food mm-hmm. baking research yeah um they joined Camden so Camden it was then Camden and Chorleywood and I there was a position going for a biscuit technologist in their flour milling and baking department and I, I took that role so again I moved on then to specialize in flower technology so that was one week being out with foxes troubleshooting while the chocolate wasn't working on the biscuit to um, running um, flour milling and baking training courses so lecturing in biscuit technology working on member-funded research projects so again it was so exciting so broad and just um, really great experience and that's how it was the last role of flamming and baking that took me into the industry. So, um, yeah, great grounding to to get out there, but a huge shock when I actually joined food <laughs> manufacturing because I'm not saying that Camden wasn't the you know, reality, but when you actually get out there in a manufacturing environment, it's a hell of a wake-up call. Is it the pace that's different or just everything? <laughs> well, it's, it's everything. I think it's the, it's the pace, it's the responsibility of, you know, we, we're going to talk, I think, a bit about running, um, running a, a launch, running a new product down the line. I didn't have those skills. I didn't understand how to do it. Um, I didn't have to deal with factory operatives that really didn't want me there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, mm. it's those skills that I just didn't have and nobody kind of coached me on it. And I guess it's the timing pressure as well, which is different from when you're working in a business like Camden, where you're problem solving, but you're not feeling that ultimate commercial pressure to get the product out, which obviously you then do once you go into the manufacturing side of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's that time pressure and it's um, it's just a responsibility that lies on your shoulders to develop, deliver a new product. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realise back then that it was okay to ask for help mm-hmm. it was okay not to have to do everything on my own I didn't understand that at that point so it was very pressured I enjoyed it it was very pressured that um yeah and from that I got a bigger global role when I moved on to work for um Griffith Foods again I love that love working for them but the the role when I left Camden was working as a dough technologist producing all the dough for Pizza Hut um at an RHM site in Leicester which is now Premier Foods yeah um yeah, it's great. So I got linked to Pizza Hut during that because they were our only customer, our sole customer. And then I went on to join Griffith Foods in a global role, developing dough blends for China, Mexico, uh, Canada, you know, all of the Central and South America, which was just amazing because I got to globally travel mm-hmm. early on in my career, which I've not done. And just the meeting so many different cultures, I loved. Yeah. Yeah. And in that, there must have been quite a lot of, you know, having to develop those people skills you were talking about early on. You didn't even you you didn't know how to deal with the people you were having to deal with in the factory. And now you're having to deal with people 
you know, internationally and all the different cultures and all of that sort of stuff. So was that a kind of steep learning curve? It was a huge learning curve. It was enjoyable, though, because because I was working in those markets for quite long, chunk, you know, big chunks of time. I got to spend time with my colleagues in their homes, in the country they're in. And I love that, you know, the, fa- the factory in China was uh, about an hour and a half round from Hong Kong in the middle of nowhere, just paddy fields. Um, I stood out like a sore thumb being <laughs> five foot nine and blonde. <laughs> and I just thought like, who is this? But um, I, it, it was great. The cultural differences. I think I learned my first aha moment was when we had a product that was continually being rejected from our China facility, actually. And I kept saying to the China team, what's going on? And we're auditing it. And it, they just weren't telling me something that they were doing because they didn't want the shame of telling me mm. something they were doing. And once I'd realised that, I was okay, I had to use softer skills to kind of help coax that out from them and work as a team rather than me coming and go, well, you've done that wrong. That didn't work. Why yes. did you do that? Yes. So that was, that was definitely a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. And you were at Griffith for quite a long time, weren't you, to do different roles within Griffith? Yeah. So I started out in a, as a principal technologist running the Doe Blend project. So I was based in the UK, but I was developing for different markets. So I spent most of my time in my other Griffith sites, so Canada, Mexico, you know, China, um, and I loved it. Our head office was in Chicago, and I reported directly into Chicago. So I had this wonderful global role for uh, three years. And then once we'd launched the factories and launched the the projects and the dough blends in those countries, the MD of the UK site said, would you like to do a commercial role? We'd like you to take on the Yum Brands account commercially for Europe. Would you like to do it? And I was kind of like, huh, well, I've never done commercial. <laughs> um, yeah, why not? I know the customer. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. So you know, no point did I kind of go, hold on a minute, just step back. So you, you're really creative. You're a visual learner. You love people. You're not necessarily that fond of numbers, but yeah, okay, I'll do a commercial role. So is it one of those situations where I've been asked to do it? So, so yeah, obviously I'll just do it and not really kind of consider, do I really want to do this? Does this really suit me? Was that, yeah. that fair to say? Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that too many people have a career plan because I just don't think it happens like that. But yeah. I definitely didn't. And I definitely felt okay so I've been asked to do it I must be good you know they want me to do it so it's a compliment mm-hmm. and oh there's a company car comes with it oh and a bit better salary and I get to be yeah. called a sales director and I was like oh mm-hmm. this is wonderful yeah. so yeah I didn't um I think that comes down to self-care really I didn't stop and go is this really what you want is it mm-hmm. right for you professionally is it right for you personally um yeah so I didn't I didn't do that it's a really good point, actually, because we talk quite a lot in the podcast about how Amy's changed diff- into different directions within businesses that she's worked in, and I've changed and done different things. But we, we've never really talked about how to make sure that it's the right decision when you're making that decision. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. th- that's it's so easy to... Because as you say, if somebody offers you that position, it's a compliment, isn't it? And so that's mm-hmm. that's that I'm the kind of person that would immediately want to say yes in that situation because I, 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 you know yeah and do you feel that Gail do you feel like you kind of got swept away with the just somebody else wanted you to do that so of course you would do it yeah absolutely and I took on the role thinking I actually told the MD at the time okay I'll take this on 
but I will do it. I will lead the account knowing what they want, back of house in restaurants and knowing what the customer wants delivered on the, you know, in the restaurant. So he was like, yeah, yeah, that's great. But because I was part of this global team, my boss sat in Chicago, so I had no local mentor. This is no fault, Griffith. This is just how it worked yeah. out. Yeah. So I didn't have a global mentor. I kind of didn't really sit with the UK team because my my team was global. So I didn't even have peers, really, that I could kind of go to and say, I don't get this or, mm, you know. No real support network. No. Mm. And I didn't know how to ask for it either. Mm. I didn't have the skills to ask for help. I didn't know how to do it. So I just ploughed on. And it was successful, you know, it just, you know, the account grew, the team grew, we we were winning awards, you mm. know, for being great suppliers. Um, I had quite a, you know, a global presence. So I was, you know, my head was above the parapet yeah. and, you know, it was great. And the say, you know, like I said, the sales grew, there was great success, but with that, you know, that was the rise, but I just keep taking on more and more and, you know, a bigger role, a new title, all bigger car, great, mm-hmm. loads of stress. Yeah. And I thought, you know, there's a rise. And then, then there came the crash, mm. which inevitably, looking back now, it had to come because I couldn't continue at that pace without some self-care. Mm. So if you're happy to, Gail, just tell us about what, what happened, what what did the crash look like for you? Well, I, like I said, I didn't look after myself. So now I look back, I'm like, yeah, that absolutely was going to happen. It was a train crash, a train crash waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I took on more and more. I continued to take on more responsibility. I thought it was absolutely okay to email throughout the night to my colleagues and globally to make sure I was emailing my team in the UK at ridiculous hours. I work weekends. I wasn't eating right. I didn't exercise. I just was. I just wasn't looking after myself. And mm. I thought to be a really busy person and be successful, stress is. Mm-hmm. You're, supposed, you're supposed to be stressed. Mm-hmm. You know, people are supposed to know that you're you're continually mm-hmm. running around and you're a bit snappy, and that's how it is. But um, it got to a point one day where it was it was coming and coming, and I wasn't looking after myself to the point one day I just I started filing my emails that I hadn't even read. Because I, my brain was so frazzled, yeah. I just couldn't cope with it. Yeah. And the emails seemed to be this constant demand of somebody wanting something from me. And I was kind of like, I can't cope, I can't cope yeah. with this anymore. And I suppose because you were working globally, it was like a 24-hour non-stop time zones. And so you didn't even get that natural relief. No. Although it sounds like even if you had, you would have carried on emailing through the night anyway, because you got into that kind of yeah. busy, the busy cycle where you just feel like you can't stop. Yeah. And I, I just, I used to be in awe. I used to look at other colleagues in Europe and in the UK who did normal hours, you know, like everybody else does kind of nine to five, mm-hmm. had families, took time out, didn't work weekends were able to switch their phone off and I didn't understand it. It was a completely different language. Mm. And I I was kind of like, how do they do that? Yeah. How do they do that? Why am I having to do 24-7 and they're, they're able to have that time out? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it got to the point where life was just about work and you were all hours and all effort was being put into that, not anything into looking after yourself. And then there was this day, day where you're just like, 
I can't even look at my emails. And I mean, I when you were saying that I was really nodding because I can I recognise that from my own burnout where you just you just get this complete apathy of I can't I, I, I just can't do this anymore. I can't look at these things anymore. Yeah, there's a, there's a point I think in burnout where you're totally on your game you're firing all cylinders and you're doing fantastic and then it's kind of this you then you come to a point you just can't do it and you drop Mm. and it's yeah it's very scary there's a lot of shame involved Mm. because you feel like you failed um something I and at the time and this is no disrespect to Griffith but they didn't know how to deal with it they didn't know what to do with me Mm. because there were the times this was back in 2009 when you didn't really talk about mental health Mm-hmm. You know, nobody really talked about it. What sort of time frame did it happen over, Gail? So you you talked about taking on that commercial role and then um, the business growing and taking on more. And what sort of time period was this over? So that time over that it was about four or five years on terms of that big rise, or you know, of the success of the account and my roles. Um, I'd say the last twelve months was really when I was kind of. I actually used to say to myself, you're just giving everything a little lick of paint. I mean, I was I was juggling so many plates that yeah. I was kind of giving everything a quick lick and then moving on. Yeah. There was no substance or quality to what I was doing. And I was very yeah. aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was running and I couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. And that's a horrible feeling, isn't it? Because you when you've given that lick, you don't you, you can't properly move on from that little bit because you know you haven't given it as much attention as you really would like to mm. so you're sort of hanging on to all of these things that yeah, worrying about is like an accumulation it's an accumulation it's a feeling of shame as well because I felt like I was failing and I knew that the quality of my work was not as great when I was doing it I just was running from one thing to the next and then something was catching up with me because I'd not done it right and I was beating myself mm. up about mistakes it just it's just you know it just goes on and on vicious cycle mm. very much okay but obviously, there is a positive side. I was of going to this say, what because, happened next? Because yeah. you've obviously come through that. Yeah. So um, the company I worked for didn't really know what to do with me because it was kind of the times when, if somebody uh, was signed off for two weeks, you've just said, "Oh, someone signed off for two weeks," and then they were back again. And this was going to be a lot longer than a two-week process. And I picked up a book that was called the um, the joy of burnout, which mm. sounds incredibly hippie and like I'm, you know, sat cross-legged with the joss stick and stuff. But <laughs> You're being good company here, don't worry if that's okay. <laughs> But, you know, it says the joy of burnout and it was, it's how the end of the world can be the start of a new beginning. And it was possibly the best thing I've ever read because it made me realise that my burnout was the best thing for me personally and mm-hmm. in my career because I was able to rebuild myself to be the person that, is happy, fulfilled, and doing what they want to do makes them happy rather than doing what I thought was expected of me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, one of the things with burnout is, and I don't know if you guys found this, is that you really can't go back to the role that you were doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I sidestepped at that point with with me. I was, it, I'm just sat here like it's like listening to myself talk because I was obviously in a commercial role as well, and I moved across into category. So I, so I get that. And what was it that held you back from going back into that role? Having done research, read the book, talked to different people, I realised you just can't go back to it because all it does is trigger the things that made you stressed and mm. anxious and unhappy. So there was obviously huge elements of the role that I loved. I loved the people, I loved the customer, I loved the creative side. But the 
the commercial side that I get being shoved into the corner on and banging my head against, which wasn't me. Mm. So the two went together. So I couldn't go back and do the role because I was picking up the bit that I didn't want to do or didn't enjoy doing. So I was given a different role of a similar level in the business, but Again, it wasn't on the creative side. So eventually I, I left and I set myself up as my, you know, my own business. So. And what have you been doing with your, what's your own business been? So I called it, I wish I hadn't called it about and thinking because it's an incredibly <laughs> long email address. But the reason I called it that was because it was, it was that I wanted to help companies stop, you know, turn around, look in a different direction at what they're doing, um, particularly on the creative side, because I was very aware within my career that lots of businesses had great ideas about innovation and what they wanted to do. But what they were short of was they were time poor in terms of getting people around the table or didn't know how to get everybody around the table to talk about innovation. And yeah, I I wanted to create that creative space for people. So I set about and thinking up to support people with that creative workshop process, you know, rapid ideation, you know, over Mm -hmm. two days. You get, you know, we we come up with fantastic products. You get a whole team together. And one of the big things I think for me was helping companies bring the teams together to focus on that. Yeah. You know, getting supply chain in the room, getting manufacturing, you know, getting everybody in the room, all the uncomfortable services you don't necessarily want to talk to (laughs) when you're developing new products. If you get them in the room at the same time when you're, um, you're creating the, the innovation or the products, it's very powerful because when you leave that room, they're all bought into it. Well, you hope they're bought into it. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? That kind of that buy-in right at the start and also feeling like they're part of the process and it's not just something yeah. that's just like, oh, we're showing this to a customer tomorrow and you've got to approve it kind of feeling mm. um, that goes on. It's, and that, that's something we've talked about quite a lot, isn't it? The the cross-functional yeah. thing, I mean, I mean, the three of us have talked quite, about quite a lot, is that getting different functions to work together, the soft skills that that takes, that the stuff that we just didn't know when we mm. were much younger, MPD people. Yeah. Like you said, Gail, at the beginning, you just didn't, you didn't realise. I, I can't remember what you're referring to then, but it's like the things that you, you start a role and you just don't, know that you you really need to know these softer skills to be able to be as successful as you want to be through the process and it's I think it's not having that understanding of where you fit within the process so to run a trial you know you need factory boarding you need engineering potentially you need supply chain you know the whole piece and you think okay I've got this recipe and I need to make it and need to get it down that line as quick as I can and without, you know, it's least hassle. But if those people aren't bought in, it's real hassle. It's a very mm. painful process. Mm. Um, yeah, you usually got, you know, you're usually shoved in at the end of a, a shift before they're about to clean down the line. Um, and it's just get that product through as quick as possible. And, and, you know, often I did trials where they just weren't a success, but I didn't have the the strength to kind of go, can we do this again? Because that didn't work. And mm. it was kind of so stressful isn't it you both know that it's very difficult yeah yeah and one of the things that we've talked about as well is that whole the dreaded whatever it's called in whatever company the listeners live in um working live in um, <laughs> that says a lot doesn't it yeah, yeah. I, did, I did live in it I did live in it <laughs> but um you know if it's an MPD meeting feasibility meeting or whatever that feeling of dread when you know you're going to go into that meeting and you've got to well I don't I don't think he, I even realized that 
I needed to go in and influence. I didn't, nobody told me that that's <laughs> no, what we needed true. to do. It was just like, go into the lion's den and there you go. And you've just got to tell them, you know, you've just got yeah. to make this happen because we need Good to luck. the customer. <laughs> 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 Let me know how it goes. And that, you know, that is the reality, isn't it, for a lot of young Yeah, I think, well, I think but the three of us have spoken about this before, and I use this phrase a lot, but it's about building your tribe. It's mm-hmm. about building a group around you as a team to deliver that and having some kind of emotional intelligence around what the other skill sets need. So how can I make this less painful for engineering? How do I get their help? Uh, why is supply chain so difficult to get that you know individual ingredient? And um, there's a you know you've all heard the phrase you know if you want to go fast you go alone, but if you want to go far you go together. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the biggest learning in terms of building a network around you and not doing it on your own. Just you know it's much more successful if you can build those relationships. And I think young technologists or food developers don't understand that mm-hmm. and. It's, you know, those are the soft skills that just aren't taught. Yeah. And I think it's true of those internal relationships within a manufacturer, but it's also, I've seen a lot of it. And I had a conversation with somebody the other day that works at a retailer that it happens with retail development as well. If that was your experience, Lucy, where I guess you'd worked in manufacturing, so you kind of understood that you needed to build relationships with suppliers, but sometimes... Oh, it's definitely an issue. Yeah. Yeah particularly for developers that haven't had that experience to, yeah. to recognize that they can't just say, I want X, Y, and Z. Yeah. It's and so not, important. And do that without building relationships yeah. in the first place. Yeah. And it's so important because you, as a, as a product developer in retail, you need to understand that you're a step back or forward, whichever way you look at it to the, your development person in the manufacturer. So they're stuck in the middle of the pressure that you're putting on them as the retailer or what the customer wants and knowing they've got to deliver that in the factory and the like they're sort of this there's these two pressure points so having that understanding if you work in retail is really good because you immediately develop a rapport with your development counterparts within manufacturing and together you can work outweighs you know the retailer can really help you come up with the you know compelling stories as to why this is important for the manufacturing business to sort of engage with the the rest of the manufacturing team who probably don't have any contact with the retail side mm. yeah so trying to see the bigger picture which yeah. we were talking about in in a previous um previous podcast is really important yeah. And Gail, a lot of your experience has been um, with food service, hasn't it? With um, the food service brands and stuff. And would you say that the same is true there? Yeah, I don't know that it's as fast as, you know, FMCG, um, particularly when I was, you know, working with ambient products or, you know, you've got a source that's got 18 month shelf life on it. It's not quite as as much pressure but then you still have the pressure of hitting the menus when they're when they're launched so whether that be working with the big groups like yum brands or mcdonald's it's the same as if you're working on casual dining with pizza express or nando's that Mm -hmm. you still have to educate your teams around fulfilling that pipeline for menu launches Mm. so it is still a a pressure not sure it's as stressful as the retail you know side but yeah, it's a very different way of working, but you know, it all comes down to communication again. How do you fill that 
recipe pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew my re- I knew my customers' recipe pipelines. Uh, sorry, launch pipelines way ahead, twelve months ahead, and I had to educate my team on how to fill that our side. So, yeah, it's still very time pressured. Yeah, and and still, like you say, so much of it that I, I don't think gets credited is actually about managing people and relationships. And and, and again, how many of us are taught to manage people? Mm. I didn't know how to manage people. In fact, you know, near the end when I when I did burn out, I must have been awful to work with because I was very sh- snappy, very hard, didn't suffer fools, and that really isn't my character. Mm. It's just that it was only what the only way I thought get things done. Come on, fast, fast, fast. Get things done. Just get on with it. I don't want to know, and you know, crack on. And that was kind of how I was. And it, yeah, I wasn't taught those um, soft mm. managerial skills of. Yeah, it sounds like you kind of got to a stage where you were very kind of transactional and just, you know, we need to, this X, X, Y, these tasks need doing and not kind of thinking about the people. So, and, and, yeah, and I find that really hard to imagine, you know, knowing you now and yes. obviously having met you, you know, post all of that, you know, you can tell you're just not that sort of person, but the stress, it sounds like the stress mm. brought that out in you or stress or lack of understanding of the people skills the kind of combination of the both mm. yeah it is and it's as we, i know we've discussed this but i've got a friend that i go walking with and she's and i was telling her a little bit how i used to be and she's like i just can't imagine that of you because i know you now and you're just not that person at all and it, i i know that we've discussed this amy but i almost want to go back and apologize <laughs> to everybody i worked with at that time and go i'm so sorry i was really struggling with all this and i didn't mean to be like that but you know mm. that's again possibly worrying a little bit too much about what people think of me rather than just <laughs> well, you've just done on. it publicly now. Well, so you've done it in the podcast. Yeah. So, so yeah. everyone that worked with me, I'm very apologetic <laughs> for being so hard and snappy, but um, I am different now. Come and have a coffee with me. I'm very different. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I recognise all of those feelings. And like you say, does it matter? And, you know, that... And I think often if you go back and you talk to those people, they they will recognise that they could see that you were stressed and that it wasn't necessarily you. But, you know, it's it's um, it's great that you can you can publicly kind of say I was wrong and I wish I hadn't been like that. Yeah. I know. yeah. And it's kind of forgiving yourself as well, I think, in that in those um, circumstances, I think I that really resonates with me. And I think people, they see it better than you do at the time. Mm. And it's it's later that you see it in yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think a lot of, with my burnout, a lot of people kind of said, you know, we saw it coming and we saw you stressed and we saw you, you know, getting snappier and whatever. But because I, I often get people messaging me saying, I've you know, I've seen a colleague, I think they're heading towards burnout what can I do? And it's really quite difficult because you ain't going to listen. You know, the person that's heading towards that burnout, all you can do is offer, you know, offer to be a listening ear or whatever. But the reality is they're going to be so, you know, just focused on whatever the next task is and not even noticing there's anything wrong that they're not even going to, you know. Well, you're just so focused on not failing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one thing I was focused on was I I can't fail at this. I just cannot show weakness, which I thought was weakness, but I can't show that vulnerability. And I think what I've learned over time is nobody is going to gravitate to somebody that is harsh, mm-hmm. hard, mm-hmm. doesn't show their emotional side, doesn't show their human side. Um, and when you when that does come through, you know, you you 
people really want to be around you, but it's hard to build that relationship and network around you when you're prickly mm. and nobody can find your soft underbelly, you know? Yeah, yeah. So the part about rebuilding uh, of myself was just the self-care, putting the self-care in place, mm-hmm. building like-minded people around you, making sure I got my sleep, exercising, you know, three, four times a week, you know, not working all hours, turning my phone off, having rooms in the house that have no social media in them. If you put all that in place, then you've given yourself a best chance of staying healthy. Mm. And so how long do you feel like it kind of took you to recover then and once you'd put those things in place? Uh, say a good two years, really, mm. to kind of learn the new way of walking. You know, it's reprogramming myself to think differently and work differently. And I think when I, I worked with a great friend of mine who helped me brainstorm what I wanted to do afterwards, and we just literally dumped down on on a flip chart everything I love to do mm-hmm. and try and then said, how do I make that work for me in a business? And that's how that's how I did it. And I know you do similar things, don't you, Amy, with clients that you work with? Yeah. So people that want to kind of work out what they actually want to do with that because I when you said that I was like was she a coach because <laughs> that sounds like she coaching. was yeah she was yeah. <laughs> um yeah and it just really get into the core of what what you want I think we just you know recognize it in what you were saying earlier about you know sometimes your careers just happen to you and your circumstances happen and it doesn't have to be like that. You can take control back of your life and your decisions. And that's the power of coaching is doing that. Um, so thanks for the little plug there for coaching. All right. Um, but when, when you're in a junior position, how difficult is that to turn around to your boss and go, do you know, I don't think this is really fitting what I like to do. It doesn't, I don't not get my creative skills out here. Uh, you know, how, how often do you get a chance to do that or the yeah. strength to do that? It's, it's incredibly difficult. It is difficult. It is. It's almost like an impossible situation, isn't it? And you you do have to do things that you're not going to like that much, but it's working out what you do want to do at that stage, which I think is really important. And so when you're then faced with the question of, oh, we've got this commercial role, we think you'd be brilliant because you're such a capable, wonderful person, knowing that, no, that's not in my Mm. remit of where I want to go and what's going to make me happy yeah so (laughs) by understanding what your values are and what's important to you being able Mm. to say no but you know I think when I ended up in commercial it was because I kind of felt like I wanted to be the center of the action you know I wanted it I wanted that and then when I got it I was like oh I'm not actually sure I want this yeah (laughs) (laughs) it it took a few years you know it's it's Um, fun isn't it building that stuff up and then then it's not sometimes it's it's fun building it up and then you get to the point where you have to maintain it and have those difficult commercial negotiations which were just a different language to me I mm-hmm. didn't I didn't get how to present that you know yeah um, I looked around other people doing it. I'm quite like, crikey they know what they're doing but it's it's that imposter syndrome as well isn't it I'm just not good enough yeah absolutely so Gail, so we've talked a lot about your burnout. We've talked a lot about how you wish you'd known certain things. And actually, when we invited you on, we were kind of like, shall we talk about the things we wish we'd known when we were younger? Yeah. Have you got anything else you'd kind of want to add at this stage about what you wish you'd known? Or I kind of wish I had somebody that told me all of those that helped share all those soft skills with me, the things that they'd learned over the years that that would help me as a junior developer in the food industry. And it just wasn't there. There were very regimented 
new product development training courses, which kind of told you the textbook of how to do it, Mm -hmm. but not the soft skills of how to deliver it and that emotional intelligence of how to build those relationships with your colleagues to get get the job done, but in a way that you were supported and not, you know, immensely stressed doing it. Yeah. So, yeah, like you say, there's lots and lots of training courses out there and you were started out at Camden. Camden have training courses and stuff like that that kind of tell you how to put a recipe together, how to, to follow do. a process, but yeah, yeah, not the how to do it. Yeah. yeah, it's the what to do, not the how to do. Yeah. Um, and that is very personal and it's not the same for every business. It's not the same for every person, which mm-hmm. makes it very difficult to have a structured training course for doesn't it because it's not a one size fits all and often you've got you know food food you know food technologists in the industry that the person that's managing them has probably not been a food technologist before so they don't necessarily know how to guide them anyway yes yeah you know that's very common they you know you get transferred across and have to run a development team but you've not done that yourself so how can you guide them and put your arm around them and help Mm. them on the things that are potentially very difficult to, to understand so yeah, I'm I'm very aware that that's missing in the industry. Yeah. Which segues quite nicely on to our kind of little announcement, doesn't it? So this doesn't is our it, it does. Um <laughs> it's almost like we planned it, no. <laughs> uh, no, but um so yes, well we've been chatting and um thinking about how we can help in the industry and help with these things and What we have pulled together is that we will be offering and delivering group mentoring workshops for MPD teams, individuals. And the idea behind that is that it is around these softer skills, not, you know, we will have elements in there that are around, you know, some of the what to do, but it's, it's more, it's all going to be about this softer skills and how you actually deliver that and make that happen. And one of the things that, we think is really important is that we don't make that just a standard course that everybody can go on. We make that tailored to the individual, so tailored to the individual business and to the individual teams that we would be working with. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, what stands out is that um, you know the innovation process isn't exclusive; it's inclusive. You can't do it on your own. You mm-hmm. have to do it with with a team around you, or you're part of a team, and helping support people in in building that team, I think is something that we'll definitely focus in on. Yeah. And yeah. and the exciting thing is that we are bringing with us, and this is where it feels a bit like we're kind of showing our age now, 70 years of experience between us. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> my chunk of that's a lot lot heavier it's than a your li- chunk. A little yeah. bit, yeah. not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it does. I mean, the, the breadth of our experience, I mean, you know, Lucy, you set up your own business. You, you know, you're you're experienced in helping um, businesses on startups. So, yeah. you know, between the retail experience, we've got the food service experience. You know, sales, commercial, and development. We've got a very strong knowledge base there to 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 reach out and support people. Yeah, mm. and I think what I think is really exciting about it is the the ability to make it really bespoke and really help identify what the challenges are and work around the problems and you know we use that word workshop i mean it is really about sort of workshopping yeah and not not just like traditional training where you just tell people things you know yeah more of a coaching mentoring space so that yeah getting to the root of the problems and working out how to how to better develop products basically the you know is the is the end goal 
And also in, in that kind of workshop environment, creating environments where people can feel like they can speak up and they can kind of say, well, I'm actually... When I go into a feasibility meeting, I found this find this bit really difficult, and and creating yeah. a space where it's okay for people to admit that they need help or they don't really yeah. know what they're doing, because yeah. we're there to help, yeah. you know, with the solutions for that. I mean, the, the basics of you know, in, it, it receiving an internal development brief from your business, you know, and challenging that, having the confidence and the right way of challenging that. You know, as as a you know, as in equally important to you know, refining and um, receiving a customer brief. It's, there's so many things there you need to ask questions about, push back on, mm-hmm. make sure it's right for your business, make sure you've got the right skills in the business to deliver that. But most of the time, people just go, "Yep, okay, I'll take that brief. Thank you." We don't yeah. really challenge it. Yeah. Um, and you know, no one, no one really teaches that. Yeah, and it's so important. So, so, so important. That was our exciting. I know. Exciting mm. stuff. So, if you are listening and that is something that you think um, would be useful within your business or your team, please get in touch with us on LinkedIn for for more information on that. And like like we say, we we plan to tailor it to each individual business. So um, we've got some general information that we can give you around that. But what we would do is initially like. Um, hop on a call with you and understand what the needs of your individual business are and then pull together a proposal from there yeah superb it's very exciting very exciting so gail if anybody wants to get in touch with you specifically to talk more about um anything or ask any questions what's the best way for them to get in touch with you i'd say linkedin that's got my email and my phone number on there so yeah absolutely message me on there or uh, shoot me a text linkedin's the best yeah Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today, Gail, and and for, you know, really giving us the open and honest truth about your career in food and the the highs and lows. Because I think, you know, it's often so easy for people to just kind of go, oh, and this happened and then glaze over the the bits that weren't so great. And it's Mm. it's great um, that you've been so open and honest. So thank you. It's been great to speak to you and it's my absolute pleasure, I think. You know, the more we talk about mental health like this, the more um, comfortable people feel in reaching out and, and asking for help. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, you know, Amy, once you've talked about this on some of your um, podcasts, that people gravitate to you when you you show your human side. Yeah. So it can only be positive. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. It's been Very an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us today and we hope that you've enjoyed it. Take care and catch us in two weeks for our next episode. And if you'd like to get in touch with us personally, Lucy is available for consultancy advice and is able to offer a free discovery call. Find her on Instagram at OutToLaunchMPD or over on LinkedIn. And if you want to reach out to Amy for any coaching or facilitation support, then you can find her at Amy Wilkinson Coaching on Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks again. I'm Lucy. And I'm Amy. See you next time.